So this is the old guy session. Every uh, conference needs an old guy session, right? You know, there's got to be, yeah, man, there's the old guy that gets up and he does what old guys do and, uh, and we're all, you know, supposed to be really appreciative of that, okay? Um, so, of, uh, of all the messages I've ever heard in my life, next to salvation by faith uh, through Jesus Christ, the new covenant is a message that just exploded in my heart exploded in the heart of David Wilkerson. As a matter of fact, he said the new covenant is going to be the key to victory over sin in the last days church. I remember he told me that the last days that we're living in are going to get so vile and vulgar that there's going to have to be a wholehearted understanding of the Word of God, of what really happened at the cross. What is the cross all about? Why is it good news of great joy to all people? What is it about the Son of God being beaten to death and rejected and having his beard ripped out and spit on and whipped and uh, marred beyond human recognition, nailed to a cross, rejected by his friends? Why did it cause angels to shout, to break through the canopy from eternity and into, into, into plain view and begin to shout glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men? So what was it about the cross that was such good news? Now, I want to start today with prayer, and then I just want to read a scripture to you from uh, the book of 1 Peter. It's chapter 1, verse 18. So, Father, I just want to thank you, God, for this message today and tomorrow. Lord, I thank you for giving me the ability to lay the groundwork that opens the book. It makes this whole story understandable. We begin to understand why the law was instituted. Where, what, what was the thread of grace all about in the Old Testament? How did it come back together at the cross? And who are we in Christ? Where are we today? Where do we set in Christ today? God Almighty, I, I just thank you, Lord, that you'll give me the ability to never do injustice to your word. Give me the ability to speak this clearly and plainly, God, as you have spoken it to us in New York City for many years now. Help me, God, to, to explain this in a way that it can be understood by all people. Lord, we, we leave the difficult things for the theologians. But God, I pray today that I might be able to land on the mountaintops and begin to explain and speak this in a way that it can cause gladness to come into every heart. Father, thank you, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this great, great, great redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. God, we give you praise and we give you glory for all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, this is just by way of introduction. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to speak on the new covenant today and tomorrow. The, you don't get to the shouting part till tomorrow. Today is the foundation. I spoke this in the Ivory Coast in a stadium to pastors, and I couldn't, by the time I got to the book of Ephesians, the whole stadium was erupting, people were shouting, my translator's laying on the floor crying, so the message was over. I never really got to finish it in the Ivory Coast. I spoke it in Sweden, and the place just exploded with glory, and a well-known evangelist in Sweden at the end of the service came up to me and says, I feel like I got saved tonight. How have I been preaching the gospel and not knowing this not seeing the totality of this truth that the way it's been presented. The ultimate test was in Ohio, where I spoke to a, about 250 Pentecostal holiness pastors. You know, so they're all about just the length of skirts and earrings and all that stuff. A lot of rules, a lot of regulations. And when I said new covenant, they all have Bibles as big as mine, and I could just see their knuckles whiten as they gripped onto the Bible and say, you know, they don't like the word new. It, it's nothing new about it. It's, it's called New Testament. I'm just calling it New Covenant. And they're saying, oh, you're not going to pull one over on us. When the service was over, the choir was crying. The pastor couldn't close the service. People were laying on the floor crying. Some were walking up and down the aisles just shouting. And an old evangelist came up to me with tears coming down his cheeks. And he said, my God, my God, what have I done to the body of Jesus Christ? Amazing. Just unlocking the story, when we begin to realize that the Bible is not a compilation of just various writings by different authors that kind of seemingly coordinated one with another. The Bible was in the heart of God. It is ordained by the heart of God. It is actually only one story. 
that's told through different characters, different times, different seasons, different writers, different circumstances, but it's all just one story. Now, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, here's the verse I want to focus on. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So that's really important to remember that because we probably won't get to that verse till tomorrow. Foreordained before the foundation of the world. So in other words, the new covenant, which I will explain as we go on, was, was foreordained in the Godhead before the world was even formed. I mean, it's an amazing thought. If you went to the doctor, a married couples that are here, and you went to the doctor next week, and the doctor came into the waiting room, and he said, I've got good news and bad news for you. Good news is you're going to have a, a baby. Bad news is that child is going to grow up, completely reject you, beat you to death, spit in your face, whip your back, nail you to a cross. Would you have that child? God did. He foreknew. He, he wasn't caught by surprise in the Garden of Eden by the fall of Adam and Eve. He foreknew that this was going to have to... I don't fully understand why he created us. I just don't understand it. He had the option not to. This, this was not in a situation where you have to deal with a, an abortion or something like that, you know, which is an ethical issue. But he didn't, we weren't even created at this point, but yet he knew creating us that we would turn on him and it would cause uh, immeasurable pain uh, in the heart of God, as, particularly in the Son of God. We, we don't fully understand all that transpired on the cross. I don't think we ever will understand the totality until we get to heaven of what actually transpired there. But yet he chose to have us, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sit down at the right hand of God, who for the joy of seeing you here today, who for the joy of spending eternity with you and me, with all of our flaws and warp and woof and faults and failures, God so loved the world. We, we speak that verse and we just gloss over it, God so loved the world. We don't even have a remote understanding of what that is. He so loved us. He so for saw us here. He saw all of the church for all of time, in a sense, until we get into eternity, and he so loved us that before Adam was even created and Eve, he formulated a plan to redeem us. Now, I want to go back, and we're going to start in the beginning. Luke chapter 2. Let me go there just for one second. I, I just love bouncing back and forth. I read the Bible in four places most every day systematically. And it keeps the book open. I, I love that. I get to see the, the, the whole, I don't get stuck in the book of Job. You ever had that happen to you? <laughs> Especially preachers, you know, oh God, when am I going to get through this book? And the people are sick of me preaching on Job. And the scripture says in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. So this is the, this is the birth of Christ. This is the mission of Christ. Good news, great joy. Great joy, I said. Come on, now somebody in here. Great joy to all people, not some people, not the strong people, not the learned people, all people. Good news, great joy to all people. For unto you is born this day the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. I, I have a mind that works like this. And I, I like to think of the angels like <laughs> this, this one angel is appearing and telling the shepherds. And they're all leaning on the canopy that separates heaven from the earth. But there's so many pressing in that suddenly they bust through the canopy by the thousands and they don't know what else to do but start singing, glory to God in the highest. Glory, all glory, all praise, all honor, everything is due to him. See, they thought, they understood something that we only can see through a glass darkly, that he was establishing peace on the earth and the, the hand of God's goodness, in a sense, had been stretched out to humankind. And now... 
It was, it was peace between God and man brought into being by the kindness of God. So the question we ask ourselves is, what made this such good news? Wasn't there already a system of religion in place? And wasn't it put there by God himself? Did not God establish the law? Did he not give a prescription as to how people who had fallen out of favor with God could be brought back into favor? So, so what was wrong with this system? You know, there were some people, I suppose, through sheer force of will, actually could navigate the system. Remember the Apostle Paul, he says, I was concerning the law blameless, which really means he had some kind of a relationship with God by his own self-effort and by obeying the laws that had been set in place. But if there was something wrong with this system, what was wrong with it that it needed to be replaced with, with something else? Now, in order to understand this, let's go right back to the beginning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. Now, first of all, I want you to know that God did not get ticked off with humanity because somebody ate an apple. You, you would be surprised how many Christians believe that. They walked up and they took a piece of fruit and ate it, and God says, oh, that's it. You're all doomed. You're all damned. You're all going to hell. All your descendants are lost because you ate something off of my tree. No, what it was, it was a theological fruit that they bit into. The devil came down into the garden. Now, he, he is described as having the nature of a serpent. I, I don't personally believe. It's my opinion. You can fight with me later on if you want. But my opinion is that he still had the beauty. He was created as one of the most beautiful uh, creations in, 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 in God's creation of his time. But he had the nature of a serpent. What is it about a serpent that, make, that gives him the nature? Well, a serpent, number one, uh, how many didn't know a serpent can't hear? A serpent does not have ears. And a serpent is led by his tongue. That's, that's the way he is guided through his life. And so he, had, he no longer could hear God because of what got into his heart. He's being guided by his own speech. And he comes down into the garden to Adam and Eve. And he gives them this temptation. He says, God knows in the day you eat of it, in the day you partake of, of what I have. He says to them, look at me. I'm an independent thinker. I, I'm not living within the small confines of this, of this, this narrow life that God has prescribed for, for me. I, I busted out of the box. And look, I, I still have my, my beauty and I still have, I have a deeper reasoning power than I, than I ever had before. And he brought this theological reasoning down into the Garden of Eden and tempted Eve and subsequently Adam to, to bite into this theology. It, it has an application to the tree of life. I'm not negating the tree of life. But he, he caused them to bite into this theology. And he says, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that's the, that's the essential sin of humankind. And if we don't know what sin, the origins of sin, we're never going to fully understand the cross. The origin of sin, the sin nature of, of humankind is found in the desire to live independently from God and in ourselves to become as God is. It's, it's becoming, may I put it this way, it's, it's the ability to be godly through human effort. We don't really need God to be godly, and we don't need God to tell us how to live. We don't need to live inside the narrowness and the confines of his word. As Pastor Tim shared, like people get so discontent in the church and say, I'm created for more than this. Where do you think that thought comes from? Have you ever read that before? When Satan came down, he said, look, Adam and Eve, you're created for more than this. In the garden, naming animals, looking after trees and doing the stuff that God... No, you've got a much bigger future ahead of you than this. Think outside of the box that God has put around you and, 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 and just partake of this wonderful ability to, to become a judge in a sense of what's good and what's evil. Look at humankind today. Look at the mess that we're now in as a world, as the world progresses in a sense in, into regression. <laughs> That's just funny. You can quote me. That's a new one. Progresses into regression and goes farther and farther away from God. How, how, how stupid society is becoming, literally worldwide, thinking that I can become a judge. I can be godly without God. Remember that. I can be godly without God. And that I can become a judge of what is good and what is evil. And, and you know, in today's world, what we can't conquer, we, we legitimize. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. So the response of that, God to Satan, in chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 14 and 15, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, 
You're cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. Now, maybe it's just my interpretation of this, so take it for what it's worth. But Adam was created from the dust. And the whole raison d'etre of Satan is to devour that which is created in the image of God, the children of Adam, created from the dust, in a sense. He's, he said, you're gonna, you, you were in an exalted place, but now you're going to be down on planet Earth, and you're going to grovel, and you're going to destroy, and you're going to literally eat dust all the days of your life. In verse 15, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. How many didn't know this is the first time the cross is preached in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is about the cross of Jesus Christ. There's going to be a seed, in a sense, a people who are going to tread your reasonings under their feet. There's going to be a he. He said, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Somebody is going to come and you're going to put a nail, may I put it that way, through his feet. In thinking you're destroying him, what you're actually doing is he's going to conquer you. He's going to, he's going to destroy this thought that you've planted in the, in the hearts of men and women in this world that without God they can be godly. He's going to break down this wall of separation that you have erected between God and his own creation. He, you're going to bruise his feet. You're going to think you've conquered him, but he in turn is going to bruise your head. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, eventually, in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to go ahead, or it might be on the screen behind. Are the scriptures appearing on the screen behind me? Oh, they are. Okay, good. In, the, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, eventually God drew to himself a man called Abraham through whom this promise would soon be fulfilled, that there's going to be another people born. There's going to be the seed of a woman. This, these peop this people group is going to be born, and they are going to be part of uh, this, this, um, this people that are going to tread upon your reasonings and put them under their feet as well. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Imagine having a promise like that. Well, actually, you do have a promise like that. We are the descendants of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. We are, as the church of Jesus Christ, everything that he spoke about to Abraham has been fulfilled through, you, through Christ, of course, going to the cross, then you and I, being the body of Christ, left on the earth. This is the greatness. This is the, what God was going to do. This is a great nation he was going to, other than the nation of Israel, that is. But from Israel was going to come the Messiah, and from the Messiah was going to come the church, and through the church, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. He promised that he was going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars. In Genesis chapter 15, in verse 5, it says, He brought him outside and said, Now look towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Count the stars. Can you imagine? Abraham is, what, 75 years old when he's called? And, and you're, you're, I don't know what the lifespan, the average lifespan was back then, maybe 125 or whatever it was. And Abraham looks up and try to count the stars. I don't know. You could probably see the stars from here, can you? I don't know about, uh, you can't in New York, but you could probably see the stars here. You can't see, you look up and you just see smog and the occasional airplane flying overhead. But out here, it's probably a little nicer. And you look up and you can, you can imagine being given a, a promise like that as God gave to Abraham. You know, Jesus Christ told us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, he said, you are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. We are, in a sense, the stars. Don't forget they had no electricity back then. And so light, you know, in Genesis, it tells us that God sent the stars in the heavens to, to give light. It was the lesser light, but to give light at night. And the stars are for seasons, to tell seasons, for direction, for travelers, to even, even the weather and other things can be determined by looking at the stars. And 
We now are those stars. You are the light of the world. Nothing was just by happenstance that Jesus spoke. He, he knew this promise that he had made to Abraham. And we are that city now set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, here's where it begins to, to get interesting. Now, in Genesis 15 again, Abraham asked this question. And he, in verse 8, he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I, I will inherit it. In other words, you're promising me this, this great heritage. You're promising me a new nation, a new land, a place to dwell. How will I know? And God said to Abraham, he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, the typology here is amazing. This is the way my mind works. So you take it or leave it. This is stuff I just throw in for free. There's nothing, no extra charge for any of this. But Jesus Christ started his ministry at 30. He ministered for three years. He was, in the, he was in the grave for three days. He was resurrected three days later. And it's all, everything points to the cross, folks. There's no happenstance in the word of God whatsoever. He said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So when you made a covenant in the Old Testament with another person, this is what you did. You took an animal, you took a goat or a heifer or a ram or something like that. You cut the beast in two. You put one side on either side of a pathway. And then the two of you walked together through the center of that covenant. And the, the, the inference in that covenant was if... I don't fulfill my part of this promise that we're making to each other, then you have the right to kill me like these animals that we're walking through. That's what the covenant was at that time. And so like even David, remember when he said to Jonathan, if iniquity be found in me, kill me yourself. You know, he had, they had made a covenant one with another. So there's, there's this understanding of covenant. Now, where it gets very, very interesting is Abraham, Abraham did not walk through that covenant. Abraham was told, sit on the side, and the only thing you have to do is chase away the birds. Chase away the vultures that come down to devour this truth. That's your job. Your job is to push this away. Your job is to bring in, into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Your job is to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Abraham, I'm not asking you, Abraham, to walk. I'm not asking you to walk with me through this covenant that's going to be made. Because Abraham, remember, he said, how do I know this is going to happen? How am I going to be blessed like this? How will my descendants be as numerous as the stars in the sky? How will I inherit this wonderful place of promise that you've laid before me. God says, take these, we're going to make a covenant now. But the interesting thing about this covenant that was made with Abraham is that God put him on the side. And the scripture tells us a little later on, it came to pass in verse 17, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is amazing. It's a type, in a sense, of God the Father, that's the smoking oven, God the Holy Spirit, the burning torch, and the sacrifice, which was the animals down, the blood sacrifice that was down there. In a sense, God walked through and made a covenant with himself to fulfill this in Abraham. Amazing. You see, in the Old Testament, when the tree of life was lost in the Garden of Eden, you see this dual thread comes from the tree. It, it's, it's hard to understand it until the new covenant is fully understood. It's like it splits in two pieces, and you see this, this covenant of grace. It goes through Abraham. It goes to David. You, you'll see it all the way through the Old Testament. This promise, in a sense, that God's going to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. But then you have a, a lower thread called the law that comes underneath it. So why is that? Why do these two things travel together through the Old Testament? And ironically, they come back together at the cross. I do believe the cross is, in a sense, the tree of life regained. Now, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So 
All Abraham had to do is, is just drive that away, which came to take away what he was about to witness. And, and you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight to hear this truth. You're going to have to fight to retain it. You're going to have to fight because there's something in all of us that believe that through human effort we can be godly. There's something in all of us that we, we get saved. It's funny. All the, all the new Christians know this truth instinctively. They know it. When you and I get saved... We're telling everybody, we know it's grace. We know it's all mercy. We're telling everybody all around us about Jesus Christ. People are getting saved. Folks, you shouldn't count, but I did. I won 52 people to Christ in the first two years of my conversion. Then I got into ministry. And one day it dawned on me, I'm not leading anybody to the Lord anymore. I know 10 times as much as I did back then. But suddenly something begins to take over. We, 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 we decide we want to give God a hand in this whole redemption in our lives. Now, this promise, as I told you, goes all the way through the Old Testament right to the cross and beyond to where you and I are today. But remember now, remember, this uh, part of learning is repetition, right? Remember, the sin nature Satan sowed into man had us believe that in ourselves we could be as God. Okay, this is where in order to show the descendants of Abraham that we're not God, God introduced a set of 600-plus laws that those who would be godly had to keep. Hmm. If you think you can be godly in your own strength, well, here's just 600-something things you have to do. And you have to make promises. You see, this old, this old covenant required men to make promises with God. Under the law, remember with Abraham, it was God making a covenant with himself. But under the law, it was God making a covenant with man. God's saying, okay, I'll be God to you. I'll be God to you. I'll, 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 be your, I'll be your provider. I'll give you victory. I'll give you all this stuff. But you have to do these things. You see, and if, if you fail on your part of the bargain, then I'm not obligated to be God to you anymore. So what you have to do is you have to make promises to do better, to be better, to read more, to pray longer. You have to make promises to be holy to be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better friend, to be a better employee. You've got to come into the temple, and you've got to prove that in yourself you can be godly without God. You see, that was what was sown in the human race. That's why the law had to be introduced into, into this whole redemptive story. Remember, Paul the Apostle said the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to an understanding that we can't do this. We need a Redeemer. We need a Savior. Amazing, 600 plus laws, and if we broke one, we had broken them all, according to the scriptures. It proved that we were not God, nor godly by our own strength, and so a new sacrifice with new promises would have to be made. Can you imagine that? Imagine coming into the temple, you got your lamb or your goat, whatever it is. You walk in, you feel like a miserable failure, and you, 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 you do the ritual cleansing and all this, and you give your sacrifice to the priest, and the priest drains the blood and burns it on the altar and, and then pronounces you clean, and you feel so good about yourself, don't you? And you walk out, uh, you're, you're, I'm, I'm ready now. I'm ready to be godly. I'm ready to be godly in my own strength. I'm ready. I'm going to do better. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read more. I'm going I'm just, I'm just to I'm I'm grit my teeth, and I'm going to be godly in my own strength. And so you walk out, and you don't get more than a... 100 yards, and somebody runs over your, your brand new shoes with their cart, their ox, and you curse him out as he goes down the road and say, oh, no, I broke another law. So you got to go over to the booth and say, how much for the goat? And, and get the rope and go back in the temple with your goat. And here I am again. Weren't you just here? Yeah, I was just here. Just, just never mind. Just, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm starting all over again, and I'm, I'm going to be godly this time. You see, we can't make promises to God because we can't keep them. We don't have the resource to keep our promises. You know, I, I have, I have a, a concern about some ministries, especially for men, that, that kind of boast themselves on men making promises to God. Yeah, folks, you can't make promises to God. We can't fulfill our promises to God. There's just no way we can do it. And so this whole system produced a river of blood. A religion of rigidity. Historians say that blood literally flowed out of the temple with people trying to walk with God, trying to be godly in their own strength. And it was a religion of rigidity, hypocrisy, and discouragement that ultimately they could never admit it, but they hated God. Somebody said to me one time, how could you say that? I said, well, he killed him when he came. It should be self-evident. 
They hated him when he came and exposed the bankruptcy of the whole system that he had established. Why did he establish the law? To show us we can't be godly in our own strength. To, to counter the sin that Satan had sown in the human race, that without a living relationship with God, you can be godly. That we in ourselves have the capability of judging what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And he had to introduce the law while at the same time making this threat of promise to Abraham. Do you understand? That was the promise of the church. It was the promise of the cross. But in order for people to understand it, they had to be brought on this other journey. This other journey of, of, of yielding, in a sense, to that lower nature of trying to be godly without God. And how many people does that describe in even the church today? I get really irate when I hear preachers preaching to saints like they're sinners. You know, for, for many, that's one of the reasons why churches don't want evangelists in their church anymore, because no one saved people were coming in. So in order to appear successful, they started condemning the righteous. Ask me how I know. I used to do it. I did. I was a revivalist in Canada. I know what this is all about. I knew how to fill altars with weeping people and go back two years later, same people weeping the same tears over the same sins. I remember coming home one time and I said to my wife, I said, the Jesus I preach is deficient. I, there's something I'm missing. I'm missing something in the story because I'm, I'm, I'm bringing the same people to the same altars, crying the same tears over the same struggles and the same sins. And the Christ I preach doesn't give victory. It just sends people out to try again. You know, I, I, would, I would lay them out by, with the law, just destroy people with the law. And then all I could say was trust Jesus. Well, why should I trust Jesus? What's the reason I can trust Jesus? We're going to get into that tomorrow. If you're not shouting, you're dead. I'm going to tell you straight out by tomorrow. <laughs> this is only the groundwork. This is just the framework. This is just to bring us to an understanding of why angels were shouting. What was this glory to God and peace on the earth and God's goodness towards man? This is where we're going. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. A river of blood, a religion of hypocrisy and discouragement. You whited graves, you appear righteous on the outside, but you are full of death on the inside. Peter said it was a yoke which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Now we get to where it's really interesting in Matthew chapter 3. Pastor Tim, I think, touched a little bit on this. So did Pastor Gary today. After 400 years of silence, this man, John the Baptist, come, and John the Baptist puts the, uh, he puts the nail in the coffin of the old, old covenant, as it is. He, he's, it's the capstone message of, of this whole system. You know, you know, it's interesting. I forgot one part of this message, but when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden. They didn't know it. And I believe they didn't know it because the kind of glory of God was on them. You know, like Moses, when Moses was in the presence of God, when he came down from the mountain, the glory of God shone on. I, I think they were, they were covered by his glory because they met with him every day. So in meeting with God, they, they had no knowledge that they had no clothing. They were just the glory of God, I believe, covered them. So when they sinned, the glory left. So what did they do? They covered themselves in fig leaves. They're kind of broad green leaves on a fig tree. Imagine how stupid they must have looked. You know, with a hat made of fig leaves and a, and a skirt and, you know, just, hi, <laughs> how are you doing, God? You know, like how idiotic they must have looked. But that's what we look like in the eyes of heaven when we try to cover ourselves. Now, eventually, humankind took fig leaves and turned it into robes of righteousness with all kinds of jewels on it and boxes on their foreheads and prayer beads and all this stuff. And they, all it was is just glorified fig leaves. The same covering. And, and Jesus said, you outwardly appear righteous, but inside you're full of death. You haven't been able to change your essential nature through human effort. Try. You've given it your best. Many, many of them had given it their, their best effort, but they couldn't change their human nature. And so now Jesus Christ is about to come on the scene. Remember the angel said, glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill towards men. This shall be your sign. You shall find a baby. You ever wonder why a baby? Why didn't he just come as a man? Why didn't he come 10 feet tall and bronze or something that identified him as God? You ever think about it? The God who carries the universe in the palm of his hand came in a form that had to be carried? 
God who feeds all things couldn't feed himself. God who invented speech couldn't talk. He had to be taught to talk like every other child. If you want to get really down and graphic, he had to, he had, somebody had to change him. Imagine changing, what were you doing today? Changing God's diapers, you know? But what, that's exactly what Mary would have said. It's not blasphemy. <laughs> he had to, had to have his diapers changed. He came as a baby. And I often wondered, God, why did you choose? Why was this a sign? You know, if I was one of the shepherds, you go and you run into a cave and there's a, the feeding trough and there's a baby. Like, big deal. This is a sign. You know what the sign was? That God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-merciful, all-glorious God came down to us in the weakest form of humanity. To show you and me, this is the sign, I'm not offended with your weakness. I'm not offended by your struggles. I'm not going to take off when things get tough. I'm not a fair-weather friend that's just going to take off when you're not perfect anymore. I have come to get you, not in your strength. I came to get you in your weakness. I didn't come for the righteous. I came to redeem sinners and call them home to me again. And the beauty of it all is they said you'd be wrapped in swaddling cloths, which are just discarded rags, realistically, that they, you would wrap a child in so if, if they, it was cold weather when they were born. And, you know, I just can't get over the fact that, that God, Almighty God, when I came to Christ for my salvation, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead took up residence inside my body. God wrapped himself in the rags of my life. He still wraps himself in rags everywhere, all the time. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his goodness. Thank God. Now, John the Baptist, it says in uh, Matthew chapter 3, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. It says, those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So we've, we've had all this time from Eden all the way now to John. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the repentance? Stop trying to be godly in your own strength. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to be the judge of what is good and what is evil. It's all prescribed for us. Stop trying to live outside of the word of God. Come back into the word of God. This is your life. This is your security. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. I feel like we're going to hear that voice again if we're not hearing it already today. That voice that says, make a way in your heart for God to come. Make the path straight for him. Don't, don't try to justify your failure. Just open the path and invite him to come in. Don't let all the crooked ways be made straight. Let all the mountains be brought, all the pride, bring it down. And all the low places it tells me I'm never going to mount anything. Lift it up and make a way for God to come into your heart. Make a way for the living Christ. So then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. In other words, they're, they're going down into that place of death and saying, I, I can't do this. I've tried to cover my sin. I've tried to be better. I've tried to do better. I've tried to read more. I've tried to pray more. I've tried to be a better friend, a better father, a better mother, a better husband, a better, better anything. I've tried to speak the truth. I've tried to stop lusting. I've tried to all these other things, and I can't. So they finally came to John and said, and they there was a confession. I need God. See, that was the issue. They had tried for so long to be godly without God, but now people are starting to stream out of this whole ungodly system saying, I need God to be godly. I can't be godly without God, and I'm sick of trying to be God. I hope somebody here is sick of trying to be godly without God. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And, and here's the key. That's the same spirit. He was basically saying, those who still have the spirit of Satan upon you, you don't have ears. So who told you that you can't be godly without God? 
Who told you? Who warned you? That's what he was saying. It all ties right back into Eden, this thing that John was speaking. He said, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Capstone! exclamation point, as you said, Pastor Tim, this exclamation point on the whole of the Old Testament. If you can be godly without God, produce the evidence, he said. Produce the fruit of God in your life. And if you can't, you see, God's, the fruit that God produces is supernatural. It's not natural. It's not produced by human effort. God can fulfill his promise through stones. It's a supernatural thing that God does. So if you can match the power of God through human effort, produce the evidence. And if you can't produce it, get ready to be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what John said. Oh, praise be to God. And the scripture, when you go on, I'm going to do it a bit tomorrow, but when the people went down into the waters of baptism, the people went into John's baptism, just like I'm done trying to be holy. I'm done trying to be God. I'm sick of sin in my life. I'm tired of confessing and sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing and sinning. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And when they came up out of the waters, John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. We can't know the victory until we are sick of sin. We're tired of trying to be holy. We're tired of all the human effort. Sorry for shouting. I do get excited about this stuff. Hallelujah. Let me close with this. As Pastor Tim said, musicians, stay where you are. It's going to be a long closing. Now, Mark chapter 11. Jesus Christ has come. He's at the point now where he's going to be heading into Jerusalem to fulfill his ministry. The covenant that God made with himself. I'm going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow because you're going to see a repeat. When Jesus Christ came to be baptized of John, you remember he went into the waters of baptism and it says a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. You remember the burning, the, 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 the burning oven, the, the smoking lamp, and the sacrifice repeats itself now at the baptism of John. God making covenant again with himself to redeem us through the cross. It's absolutely amazing when you begin to see it. But here's where, this is just, I want to just throw a teaser out to you now. In Mark chapter 11... It says, Jesus went into Jerusalem. That's uh, Mark 11, 11. I believe that's where I should be right now. I don't, I'm all over the map here. I haven't followed my notes, so I'm just, I'm just everywhere. Praise God. <laughs> Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, Mark 11, 11. He looked around at all things. The hour was now late, and he went out to Bethany with the 12. The next day when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. Now, this is an assumption by the writer. I mean, I assume he was hungry, but not the hunger that they saw or thought. They, probably, they thought he was hungry for fruit. No, it wasn't that. In my opinion, it wasn't that at all. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So this, this is a bit of a, a dilemma for the literalist who looks at this, because number one... He should have known there was, it wasn't the season for figs. Number two, if he's omniscient, he would know this plant has no fruit on it. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again, and his disciples heard it. It would also make him extremely petty as the son of God, walking up to a tree and, oh, no fruit, curse you, you know? It would make the power of God like on a display that it was never intended to be. So what was it about? I want you to remember where we started, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, when, when he came down into the garden, when Adam and Eve bit into the theology that they could become godly without God, what were they wearing? Fig leaves. What did they believe? 
that through human effort, the fruit of God could be produced. So here's Jesus coming now to destroy this entire Old Testament system. He walks up to the fig tree, and in my mind, it's, it, again, it's my interpretation, but in my mind, you see, he doesn't dwell in time like we do. We dwell in time. You're, like some of you are saying, when is this guy ever going to finish this message? So we, we dwell in time. God does not dwell in time. Like a, a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So he's, in my mind, he's coming down, in a sense, into the Garden of Eden, and there is Adam and Eve. Uh, they're dressed in fig leaves, believing that they can produce the fruit of God. Or godliness in themselves. And he's, he's looking at this and he's looking at Adam. And that's his hunger. In my mind, at least anyway. He's hungry for you. Yes. He's hungry for a restored fellowship with his creation. That hunger is going to send him to a cross. That hunger was foreordained before the foundation of the world that he would go to the cross to get us home. Because he knew if he created us with the ability to think independently, we would turn against him. He foreknew it. But God so loved, God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. And he looked at this fig tree and he said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. In other words, remember what the promise was in Genesis 3.15? You're going to, devil, you're going to bruise his feet, but he's going to step on your head. He's going to destroy your reasoning that you have planted in the hearts of humanity. That without God and through human effort, they can be godly in their own, in their own efforts and in their own strength. And he looks at that tree because the, the Adam and Eve clothed in fig leaves represented that whole system. And now, it, it, it had progressed. It was now fancy robes and, and uh, temples and all this other stuff that was going on. But it started with fig leaves. And he looks at it and he says, I curse your power to deceive. Oh, Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. I feel the hair on the back of my neck raising up. I just, I just, I curse your power to deceive. So he went into Jerusalem, into the temple, and he, that's where he drove out the money changers. That's where the anger, the, the tangible anger of God began to be on display as he made a scourge of cords and threw them out of the temple and said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. I, I've, it is in the heart of God to have a relationship with his people where we change from image to image and glory to glory by simply asking God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that whole system of driven prayer, I'm, I'm very skeptical of anything that purports to be of God that has no prayer in it anymore. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. This is what religion will do. It wants to destroy the Son of God. It wants to eradicate the simplicity of Christ. When evening came, he went out of the city. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered away. And he responds by saying, have faith in God. For assuredly, now this is where, this is where I'm going to tag on to your message today, Pastor Tim, about prayer. Assuredly, I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, now he immediately turns their attention from the fig tree to the mountain. The fig tree is just one form of deception on one person, one false covering. But the mountain, the only mountain in the area was Jerusalem. It's the entire system that came out of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. It's the whole system of faux covering. It's the whole system of human effort getting through to God. And he says, have faith in God for Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe you receive them and you will have them. It's in the context of taking authority over the deception of our times. Talk about, talk about a promise. You know, we, we, we can spend our lives focusing on our own fig leaves, you know, fig trees, like little victories of, you know, where I, I was deceived by this and I'll, I'll be deceived by it no more. No, let no one eat fruit of you anymore. Yeah, you can all think of the things that deceived us. Alcohol, you thought you were going to be happy, you didn't see your home wrecked and what it was going to do to your life. Or that momentary high, how it offered such pleasure. It was another fig, fig leaf that came into your, and you stood against it and you said, no, no more. Jesus said, no, let's take it beyond just your own personal victory. Let's take it to our society we live in today. 
Let's take it to our cities. Let's take it to our grade schools. Let's take it to our high schools. Let's stand in prayer and say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. Let's start to believe God again. He didn't just write that in, in in this chapter just to fill in space, thinking, oh, I got, I got to say something else here. There's only, it's only 27 verses in this chapter. I got to think of something to say. It wasn't just light speech. It wasn't idle speech. Not just the deceptive power of, of, of human fallen reasoning over one person or one tree, but the entire mountain, which is its food source, in a sense, for this rebellion against God. It's time for the church now to begin to pray like we've never prayed before. It's time for us to believe that God can set our children free. God can invade our colleges and universities. God can, can do... Listen, I'm not willing to let perverts have the last word any longer. I'm going to be praying at the throne of God and believe that we're going to see a victory in this generation. Now, all I said today was an introduction into what I want to talk about. Oh, man, when you get to the right hand of God, you can dance. You can get up and shout and dance. I'll wait for you to stop. You can join me on the platform and do whatever you want to do. But I'm telling you, it is good news. It is great joy to all people. Hallelujah. You know... It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude. Another word for angel is pastor. You take this message home to your church, and suddenly there's with the pastor a great multitude. Shouting into the heavens, glory to God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. I'll tell you, people start coming to your church. They say, what is it with these people? You know, the apostle Peter said, be ready to have an answer for those that are going to ask you for a reason. We're living in a season of such despair now in society. Like some of our major colleges right now have an epidemic of depression. People don't see a future. I just spoke in a little town in Canada, just a little wee fishing town. Very beautiful, idyllic little town. I mean, they they have fishing boats, go out, catch lobster every morning, they come back in. And it's, it's just everything is nice. There's no pollution there. And... 2,200 people, and they had 13 teenagers commit suicide in the last two years. They see this generation doesn't see hope. They don't see a future. We have the power now. We have the power in prayer. When, when we stop trying to be holy and wasting all of our time trying to be holy in our own strength. You know, the church has been somewhat paralyzed by a lot of this stuff. You know, just our whole focus is on me and me. I'm going to be nicer. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be all this stuff. And we really lost the cross. As I've shared with Pastor Tim, when Josiah's, when they're rebuilding the temple, suddenly some guy comes in and says, hey, I found the book. I found the book. The word of God got lost in the temple. And when you rediscover this incredible beauty of Jesus Christ, I want to cry, I want to clap, I want to dance, I want to shout, I want to sing, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Paul the Apostle said, he said, knowing this truth, should we say, let's go out and sin that grace may abound? And Paul said, God forbid, how can we even think that way as people of God? You know, like this is the greatest news that, that we're covered. God made a covenant with himself to redeem us. And in the Old Testament, we had to make promises to God for God to be God to us. And the New Testament says, I don't want your promises anymore. You can't fulfill them. I'll tell you what. I'll make promises to you. You believe them. That's the deal now. You believe them. And as you believe them, I send my Holy Spirit into your life, and he will make these promises a reality. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But till then, till then, let me give you a teaser. I'm going to sit you in Christ at the right hand of God. He is the head. We are the body. You cannot detach the head from the body. When Jesus Christ said, it is finished, when he, when he redeemed us, you know, a runner, when he runs a race, when they get to the end, they lunge like this. And the head goes over the line first. And as soon as the head crosses the line, the body automatically wins, even though the body's still not across the line yet. We're not, we're not across the line yet, but we're already in Christ at the right hand of God. We're already more than conquerors through Christ who loved us.
We already live in victory. I spoke this at AT&T Stadium to a whole bunch of men, and, I, and it was on a football field. I said, guys, what you got to understand is we're already in the end zone. All we got to do is spike the ball. And they got it. 40,000 men started shouting. It was just amazing just to hear it. We're already there in Christ. Already more than conquerors. Already victorious. Not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Gave us promises. I, I don't change from image to image and glory to glory by making promises. To God. I don't promise God anything. I can't keep them. But I live now by his promises to me. Praise be to God. That is called the new covenant. The new covenant. The old covenant, people made promises to God. New covenant, God makes promises to us. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. When you're starting to see it, you're getting a glimpse. You're getting a glimpse. But we're going to go deeper into the new covenant tomorrow. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for just, oh God, for helping us rediscover the book. Thank you for Pastor Gary who puts his finger in the book and says, preach the book. Thank you for Pastor Tim who's preaching a new message called uh, on, on, on biblical understanding, foundations of biblical truth. God, thank you, Lord. We're rediscovering the book again and the story that goes with it. This great, great redemption that gets lost when we try to be godly in our own strength. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to give an altar call. I want to finish with an altar call today. And, and I finished with it one minute and 41 seconds left, by the way, in case you think I've gone too long. Here it is. Let's keep it simple. I'm sick of trying to be holy. <laughs> I know it sounds blasphemous, but it's not. I am just sick of trying to be holy. I'm sick of going to bed condemned every night. I'm sick of the devil always pointing. See, when you're under the law, you give legal access to Satan to point out your failures. You understand? When you're under the law, then you're trying to prove your own righteousness through your own acts of obedience. And when you told a lie, you know, you, you told a lie at work. You lied to the police officer when you stopped. He stopped you, right? And he said, how fast were you going? He said, I don't know. You knew full well how fast you were going. The devil's right there, and he puts, pulls up a chair beside your bed. He says, okay, let's talk about your day now, and points his finger, and you, you go to bed condemned. You wake up condemned because you're trying to be holy in your own strength. But when Christ is at the center core, when you're, when you're driving away, you just say, oh, God, I'm sorry I lied about that. And the Lord says, okay, I got you covered. <laughs> and the devil, the devil, he can't point to you. He's got to go through Jesus to get to you now. And he can't. He wouldn't dare. He wouldn't dare even try. Oh, hallelujah. 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 Let's all stand. And if you, if you just want to come and... I know it sounds odd to give an altar call like this, but Lord, I'm just sick of trying to be holy. <laughs> Lord, help me, to, help me to give up my own efforts at trying to be holy and help me, God, just to, to let you be God in my life. Just, just to let you be God. Help me to believe your promises to me and let the Holy Spirit make these promises a reality. Praise God. Come on in, guys. Move in close. Move in close. I'm just tired. I don't know about you, but I'm tired too. I'm tired. This is so liberating. It's so freeing when you get it. It doesn't mean you're not going to be holy. It means you're trusting God for the strength now. The strength to be the person that he's made. As we behold him, Paul says, we are changed by the Spirit of God into the same image of Christ by grace, not by human effort, not by works. Now, the self-righteous will get mad at this kind of preaching. They always have gotten mad, and they always will. But it's so freeing. It's so absolutely, it's not a license to sin, folks, and don't, don't think I've ever shared. It's not. It's not a license to sin. It's the, it's the weight of victory for people who want to live in victory over sin. Praise be to God. Father, thank you again, God. Thank you again. Thank you again, Lord. Jesus Christ, God, we praise you and bless you, Lord. Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. And I thank you, God, for delivering me as a Christian from my own efforts to be holy. I tried so hard. 
and lived under such condemnation. Thank you, God, for delivering me from condemning your people. Lord, you say in Proverbs that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both are an abomination to God. God, I thank you for the people that are here, Lord. Jesus, God Almighty, we do hear the chains falling. We do hear the prison doors opening. We do, we do, Lord. We feel the bruised hearts receiving the healing that only God can give them. Father, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.